Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 11, recorded Thursday, February 8th, 2018. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In our second episode of the year, we will be speaking with Carmen Hackstead, Vice President External Relations at Grand Prairie Regional College, Georgina Altman, Vice President External Relations and Infrastructure at Lakeland College, Michael Donlevy, Vice President Business Development at Red Deer College, and Scott Dexheimer, President and CEO of Atreo Group. Today's topic, the urban-non-urban divide in fundraising and why fundraising in smaller centers has both its rewards and its challenges. We've brought together four fundraising leaders to help us understand and better prepare for fundraising success inside and outside of larger urban areas. Join us as we discuss this topic and how we can all become better fundraisers no matter where we are. Coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We have four great guests today, each with their own unique perspective and experience with this topic. They're excited. I'm excited. Let's get started. Joining us from Grand Prairie in northwestern Alberta, we have Carmen Hackstead. Carmen and I have known each other since the late 1990s. We first met when I lived in Edmonton. Carmen, this is your first visit to our podcast. We're excited to have you with us. Thank you and welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm very excited. I have a bit of a shameful secret. I have never been to Grand Prairie. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping you'll take a few minutes and tell us more about the place where, where you were born and raised. Carmen, can you tell us what we need to know about Grand Prairie? Well, I think um, uh, it's, it's interesting. You said you hadn't been here. It always seems the road is uh, long uh, further from going uh, south to north than north to south. But that being said, uh, I'm uh, born and raised in Grand Prairie. I went to the University of Minnesota Duluth on a hockey scholarship and returned with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree to my hometown and uh, became the director curator. So uh, that was the uh, Kind of a strange way about getting into fundraising, but that's that's my story. All right. So, someone who's never been to Grand Prairie, what's the biggest deal about Grand Prairie? What what, what do you tell people? Well, I, I think it's um it's a growing community. It, it's been uh, it's uh, we've got four fairly large uh, industry. Uh, we think I, I was on the Chamber of Commerce at uh, one time. Uh, the chamber president and we we talked about a trading area of 250,000 is uh, is now approximately 300,000. Uh, our population is uh, just getting close to 80,000. It's at 76,000. So when I was in high school, for example, in in the 70s, uh, it was only uh, 20,000. So we've had a huge growth: uh, oil and gas, agriculture. Uh, retail now is becoming a, a bigger sector, um, in the sense that we, we've opened our doors to the box stores and so we get a lot of draw from, from the, what we call the real north versus, uh, Grand Prairie being north to the people in Calgary and so on. So, uh, we have a huge trading area. We, um, uh, it's very balanced. Uh, I think even when the oil gas, uh, uh, industry 
took a little downturn. Uh, it seemed that Grand Prairie just kept kept going. And um, I've talked to some of the oil and gas industry people, and they say we're the the last to to feel the the downturn, and and we're the first to go on the up. So, and I, I can physically even see it because my office is uh, looks out to what we call the bypass, and I tell you. Uh, the trucks and cars, uh, it's unbelievable. So it's a very, very busy city. It doesn't seem to slow down. Um, it's a bit transient, but uh, we have a lot of people that come, and they say they only come for a couple of years, and they they stay. Well, th- thanks, Carmen. I um, I have it's on my bucket list. I know that sounds funny to some people, but it's actually not. I I, I would love to get there. So thank you for that overview. Um, wait, wait, also wait, joining wait. us, okay. go ahead. Can I just mention one more thing, the, the fact yeah. of being north here, and that is uh, I think we've over the years built the amenities of a larger city, and that has helped mm-hmm. a lot in the, the growth of the population. So thank you, sir. Yeah, no worries. Um, I've heard that a lot about Grand Prairie. It's got amazing amenities, so thank you. Also joining us this morning from Lakeland College, we have Georgina Altman. Georgina, we've tried to have you on our podcast. We had tried to have you on our podcast last year, but but the universe conspired against us. And now we're so glad that you're with us today. So, so welcome. Thank you. For for those who don't know where Lakeland College is located, uh, its main campus is in Lloydminster, Alberta. And, and one of the most interesting things, among many interesting things about Lloydminster, is that it exists in not one but but two provinces. Lloydminster is located in both Alberta and Saskatchewan. Georgina, for the uninitiated, can you share with us? And, you know, what are the best and worst parts about this unique happenstance of geography? Well, the, the border city virtue or bane for, for us is something that uh, I end up talking about a lot. Um, but Lloydminster is actually constituted and has a, a separate act of, of legislation in both the Alberta and Saskatchewan governments to exist as it does. So it is one city that exists in the two provinces. So we have fun things like within the city limits, there's there's no um, sales tax. You know, we follow Alberta's rules for one thing. Um, we'll have Saskatchewan for others, you know, depending on what the, the city will decide what works best for them and work that forward. Where it becomes more of a challenge is anything that is provincially funded um, depends on the, the province that you live in and depends on the the number of people who live in that side of the province. So you can literally cross the street to whether you're 18 or 19, whether you want to have a, a beverage in a licensed establishment or not. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and, and there'll be stories of, of people who lived about an hour outside of town or within our trading district, and they're, they're young people, and it's New Year's Eve, and they celebrate New Year's Eve in Saskatchewan and jump in the car and race to Alberta so they can do it again in Alberta. So, <laughs> Crazy things like that. So that, that's the fun side of it. The, the not so fun side is when you're, you're a professional, a licensed professional, like a physician, like a chiropractor, like a, um, a investment professional, on and on. You need to be dual licensed. You need to create all those kinds of things that, that adds to, um, being able to do business in this community. However, it is a, it's a huge business community. Tons of oil and gas, lots of agriculture, long history of, of entrepreneurs and self-starters and, and really great stories that come out of this part of the world. And it just creates a really vibrant kind of fabric for, for us all to work and, and live out of. I hadn't thought about the, the what, how this would affect professionals. That's crazy. Um, so that, that adds quite a bit of burden to their costs. 
It, it sure does. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's something that uh, people make choices about which province you want to live in. But where where your footprint is, like where you where you live. So as an Alberta resident, do you pay Alberta taxes and do those things? As a Saskatchewan resident, you would do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So so it does impact you know personal income tax. You know, depending on you know people will make choices about which province they live on depending on their their you know personal circumstances because there might be benefits to one over the other and and. Benefits that change over your lifetime too, right? So uh, it's interesting. And it's just the world that those that live in this part of the world live in, so we get used to it. Well, thanks for sharing that. I know it was probably a, 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 a pretty predictable question, but I couldn't help <laughs> not asking it. So thanks for that. Um, pleasure. Our, <laughs> our, our third panelist joining us from Central Alberta and the proud new home of the Gary W. Harris Game Center, we have Michael Donlevy. Michael, this is also your first visit to our podcast, so welcome. Thanks very much, Vincent. Uh, you know, uh, Michael, I'm wondering, um, I opened your intro with a reference to the Gary Harris Center. This is a big deal. I'm wondering if you can take a few minutes and tell us, you know, just what this is, where it is, and, and how it came about. Sure. Um, it's uh, many people who come through on Highway 2, which is the second busiest highway in Canada, actually, um, will pass by through Red Deer. Indeed, when we lived in Edmonton and in Calgary, you'd often pass by, except you'd stop at Gasoline Alley. We want to stop that uh, uh, nomenclature, if you will, and uh, and change the trajectory of how Red Deer is viewed. Um, Red Deer was selected uh, to host the Canada Winter Games in, in February of 2019, so it's actually just a year away, literally this week. Um, and by virtue of that, uh, a long time in the planning had been a Center for Health, Wellness, and Sport at Red Deer College, which for a variety of reasons, government funding and the like and priorities of governments of both parties uh, it didn't get any kind of traction. The games themselves served as an impetus because we joined in the bid with the City of Red Deer and the Games Host Society to submit a bid uh, for the games for 19, and by virtue of that, we received uh, a go-ahead finally from government, which which uh, actually was sustained through the change of government to fund a portion of the and give approval to the construction of uh, a center for health, wellness, and sport. We're hosting five five events uh, uh, aligned with the games, but our focus is the day after the games. So the building itself was uh, named in commemoration of a, a philanthropic gift from Gary Harris, a $5 million gift, which was the largest individual gift ever to Red Deer College. He's an alum, uh, very generous, and it was most humbling uh, for, for me to have a, be very much a part of that uh, uh, acquisition of the, of the gift. And as well, it's a, it is the designated Canada Games host or Canada Games uh, legacy building. They always designate one in each venue or city where they host it, where it's hosted. And so it is by virtue of that, or by using that term again, um, the Gary W. Harris Canada Games Center. So um, uh, it flanks Highway 2. It's a quarter million square foot facility that will uh, be the home for our Kings and Queens basketball, volleyball, and hockey teams, among many. Uh, it, but it's also a community accessible uh, international regulation gymnasium and an Olympic ice surface, and the only one in central Alberta. Uh, but the heart of that building is a center for, uh, for health and wellness, and uh, uh, it's um, it, because really it will be about kinesiology programming. It'll be about uh, healthcare programming, science, uh, even our programs in education. 
So this is the, the final anchor for us uh, that we see as part of our quest to become and re- redesignated as a uh, degree-granting uh, polytechnic university. And uh, this, is, this is critical to our long-term vision and path and, uh, frankly, critical to the growth of Central Alberta and the sustainability of the region. Thank you, Michael. I, um, I, you know, I, I've been amazed. I've had tours of the place. It's an amazing facility. But as an Albertan who travels the highway, I love that we have this awesome landmark, you know, that you can see from the highway with the, you know, sort of zero to 100 uh, uh, track markers on the outside of the building. Fantastic. Very cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's super so, cool. as I said, we hope people won't be saying gasoline alley anymore when it comes to Red <laughs> Well, I think it's a much better landmark to point to, so that's great. Um, that's thank great. you. Uh, rounding out our panel today, we have, returning for the third time, my business partner and our new president and CEO of Atreo, Scott Dexheimer. Scott, welcome. Um, it, uh, it seems like each time we have you on, you've taken on some new role. On our very first podcast, you had just accepted the role of chair of the AFP Canada Board of Directors. Now, now you're back, and you've recently become the president of Betrayo. Congratulations! Thank uh, you. As your business business partner and friend, I'm super happy to see you take on this role. So, thank you. Um, our listeners are curious, though, and and uh, can you tell us what brought this change on, and why why you decided to take that job, that to become the president of Betrayo? Well, I think it's a it's a reflection of where Vitreo is going, or and and basically where it has been and where it's going. And I think we we all know, uh, you know, in in campaigns and in the organizations that we work with, that that uh, having a, a clear vision and a clear focus on where you're going is uh, is very important. And you know, I, I I the partnership and others have have come together over the last couple of years as we've. As we've continued to to serve our our clients, and and this is an evolution, and in, in many ways, what it's a reflection of is that we've we we've got uh, an expanding and uh, a market, uh, a lot of uh, nonprofits uh, across Western Canada that we continue to do work with, and this just gives us an opportunity to better focus our our efforts and 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 have realigned our work related to marketing and and how we we work with our clients and and as well my role in terms of overall strategy. So it's a it's a great opportunity I think for for all of us to really hone our skills and it's something that we actually portray and and work with our clients on is making sure that their skills are 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 best utilized for for their success and and I think we've done the same thing in our company as we as we grew through the first 2 years of our of our evolution. Well, thanks, Scott. I, I'm I'm on a very selfish level now. When someone says, "So, uh, uh, you know, who's your president?" I can now say, "Oh, we have one. He's a great guy. His name's Scott. Here's his phone number. Give him a call." And that's that's yeah. uh, that's part of the piece I really like, and, and it also helps consolidate the marketplace. So, I, um, I I I didn't want to make this a commercial for betrayal, but it was a change of position, so I wanted to highlight that. So, thanks, Scott. Thank you. Uh, and by the way, uh, I didn't tell him any of this in advance, so he's probably going, gee, I would have liked a heads up. Um, <laughs> thank you all for joining us on this, our 11th podcast. Today's topic is the urban-non-urban divide in fundraising and why fundraising in smaller centers has both its rewards and its challenges. Um, how you fundraise has always depended on where you are and who you are talking with. Approaches to fundraising that work in larger centers don't always work in smaller centers. 
what might work with an urban white-collar crowd could get you into trouble with a rancher who has 2,000 head of cattle or a farmer about to seed 10 sections of land. Even how we talk about fundraising is different depending on where we are, whether we're in downtown Calgary or addressing a business owner in Grand Prairie. We have brought together four fundraising leaders, each with deep experience in working in smaller centers to help us understand and better prepare for fundraising success outside of larger urban areas and even inside large urban areas. There are challenges, yes, but there are also unique opportunities too. Georgina, I, I, I want to start with you. Uh, what, are, what are the biggest differences you have seen when fundraising in Lloydminster versus how, say, your colleagues are fundraising in Saskatoon or, or Edmonton? Um, I think the biggest thing is anonymity. I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm I'm really pleased to say that after you know 20 years fundraising in my in my hometown, um, people still take my calls and still want to go for visits and do those kind of things, and don't assume that I'm necessarily going to be out there to ask for money. And I think for a, for a fundraiser, somebody new from the area or in the area who doesn't come from that background, it's having that challenge of how do you bridge that gap between between you know being a fundraiser and just living your life. Um, and so I think that's part of the, the biggest thing out here. I think when you talk about the difference between rural and, and urban is that when you work in a rural sector, you also have to be proficient in the urban sector too because when you're working, especially corporately or for our case alumni and people who are living you know, away from the area now, they're sitting in downtown Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, wherever that may be. So you need to be able to bridge that gap and, and be able to do a bit of both. So I, I think that you know, coming from a small center, you, you need to be that generalist extraordinaire and, and still manage all the areas and, and be aware of it. So your, your knowledge base and professionalism has to be there. And you, you can't be throwing in all the terminology that, and that you might see in, in a more citified conversation, for lack of better words. So it, it's quite interesting and it's a lot of fun. Like it keeps your brain going, that's for sure. Well, I'm glad you brought up that. Yeah, Michael, I'm going to, I'm going to bring that in. Uh, I, I heard about urban and I heard about terminology. So, Michael, take her away. Well, it, I wanted to, to build on what uh, Georgina said. She articulated it really well. Um, the, 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 it's a double-edged sword in, in, for me in terms of both the reward and the, and the challenge. In a smaller community, including, a, I mean, we're a city of 100,000 people and a catchment of 350,000. So, I mean, you're, the reach is, 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 is significant. And so we're, we're a, we're a urban kind of community. Um, but, um, the, the benefit is that, that, People will take your call. Is you don't have the anonymity. Uh, you have. Uh, it, you can actually point whether you're a fundraiser in the post-secondary sector or a fundraiser for the women's shelter or the hospice or whatever. You can actually point to things that you had a direct impact on. Um, in larger urban centers, perhaps that's not as easy to do. Uh, that, but you, the contrary to that is that in your, your loss of anonymity is, is a, is a negative in that you always are on. Uh, I don't go anywhere in this community socially, whether it's a farmer's market or the theater or a hockey game, that people don't know who I am in some ways and that carries with it certain disadvantages because there's a presumption that if I ask someone to lunch that I'm going to be asking them for money. So I see that as a as a bit of a challenge that you don't necessarily experience, I would believe, in an urban center, uh, a larger urban center, because, again, you're part of a larger mix. Hmm. Uh, uh, Carmen, what are your thoughts? 
<clears throat> well, I have to agree with my colleagues there. <clears throat> living in a smaller town, you're, you're a bit of, in a fishbowl, and you are always on. And I, I guess the word that comes to me is uh, uh, building a trust and relationships. And uh, I think we couldn't do our business uh, without uh, strong relationships with the community. And that's uh, all across all sectors. It's just um, you're, you're faced with it every day. And so I think the, the other thing with that is the, the promise that we make uh, – once the gift is made, is, is is delivering of that promise and how we stewardship that gift. Uh, I think in a small, I'm, I'm sure it's it's like that in a bigger center, but uh, you just can't get away with uh, uh, not doing it well here because uh, you will be uh, found out, so to speak. And uh, it's uh, I mean, absolutely right. Yes, I also want to just add uh, for my. Buddies in the forestry industry, uh, I, I missed the fourth uh, pillar was was uh, forestry because it's quite large. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. I should you go to be in trouble with your buddies. Well, yeah. exactly, and I, I, I look back to the days of the gallery when we're raising money. As uh, Procter and Gamble was uh, back uh, fairly big back then, it, it helped uh, boost Grand Prairie, and they gave a, a large gift to our gallery. So I got to remember uh, our forestry people. Awesome. I uh, I want to dig into the uh, the terminology comment that was made by by you, uh, Georgian. I don't know if you want to add some texture that, to that, or if Scott, you wanted to weigh in on just what have been your experiences, like like practical experiences with just the language we use in fundraising and and how that uh, might be different in different places. Yeah, and I I don't mind weighing in here. And and part is like when we're structuring a campaign, as we get into smaller towns. It's not uncommon for us to give consideration to dropping the term campaign cabinet, something like that. Uh, that's smaller, smaller, uh, towns. And, you know, we, on this call, there's, there's relatively larger urban centers still. So the word cabinet works. But as you, as you shrink, um, it, it's more inclined to be called a volunteer committee or, or the fundraising committee. Something that's, that's a, a much less formal, but more community oriented term because it's something that people understand. And, and you know, in, in, uh, in bigger centers, Calgary, uh, you know, Edmonton and others, when we ask people to join a cabinet, they're honored. Uh, if I, if I were to do the same thing in Drumheller, the first thing they say is, what's a cabinet and why do you call it that? And, 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 uh, and in, in part because often major campaigns are so new to some of these communities. And so, you know, thinking about the way we, we even talk about our work, which, you know, I think we use a lot of terms that are somewhat unfortunate related to prospects or suspects or those types of things, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't work near as well in a, in a, in a community, especially smaller ones, because that's not the way they think of their peers. And, and also the discussion of money is much less, uh, is, is much less common than it is in a larger center. So, so the more we formalize and, and treat people in it in more like a commodity, which I, I don't, I don't like anyway, uh, then it, it actually hurts us when we're working with volunteers and others because trust in the system, trust in the institution, and trust in, between those volunteers is very critical. So we really need to have caution in the way that we speak about, about the way we work with individuals and, and cause that, that trust can be broken down relatively quickly. Yeah, and if I could add to that, um, you know, Lakeland College actually has two campuses. Its original and, and slightly larger campus is actually Vermil in Vermilion, Alberta, which is 45 minutes west of Lloydminster. 
And so when you think about that, and it's a town of 5,000 people. So to start talking about cabinets and the language and all the rest of it, it, it just doesn't work here. And, um, you know, as the college grows and has grown, so has the community around it because we're the largest employer, we have the largest footprint. So when you lose that anonymity here and, and in a almost strictly farming community, people don't want to talk about the fact that they're doing better than their neighbors are or make big flashy gifts or be louder for those kind of things. You just quietly, if you're doing well, you quietly do well. And others will know that, but you don't want to be talking about it. So it, it creates a very different dynamic even between the two communities, how we do everything from talk about major gifts to to sponsorships for events. It's just, it's quite an interesting dynamic. In, in our setting, if, uh, to augment that in Red Deer, uh, and again, I'm speaking only with, from that perspective, is that we're sitting on the cusp of big cityness versus that very that very rural kind of perspective that Georgina has, has, has spoken of. Because in many ways, there's a bit of a corporatization taking place with, you know, publicly traded companies, with some large entities in the region uh, where, you know, the language is not necessarily a foreign language to people. Um, that stated is that at the core of the values of, of within our region is absolutely what Scott is, has addressed, which is about integrity, trust, and donor-centric relationships centric. If we are not, uh, you lose all credibility. You lose uh, any kind of, of ability to go back. Uh, stewardship is fundamental and a high expectation that you don't screw it up because uh, if you take it less seriously than you should, um, whether it's branding, whether it's recognition, whether it's just giving honor, uh, saying thank you at appropriate and frequent times, uh, you're in deep trouble in terms of overall community credibility. So a corporate leader uh, in a large company, for example, and I'd perhaps suggest that, that Carmen would know of this, say with P&G or whomever uh, in, uh, in Grand Prairie, nonetheless, they actually have an expectation that you will work with them in a relationship-centric way. Um, I'm, uh, I find it quite remarkable that uh, even though they may be corporate leaders, there's a high expectation around that. So there's, there's this sort of betwixt and between of companies who, who, who are corporate, and you could say campaign cabinet, for example, but others uh, uh, who uh, they're doing well and they don't necessarily want to broadcast that. And it's uh, how you approach them has to be very much about uncovering their unmet needs. Yeah, if I could just add from uh, Grand Prairie here that uh, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, with all the comments. And uh, I have to give a plug to AFP because I, I think the professional development, uh, I know over my years, has just been tremendous. And uh, to meet people like Scott, who uh, has been uh, a consultant for us, uh, Really helped. Uh, we surveyed the community, and and uh, it just was. Uh, it's pretty amazing uh, to, to be able to have that outside counsel. Uh, it's it's hard to to um, convince, say, a board uh, locally that well, why do you need outside? We we know our stuff here, but uh, I think it was one of the best things we've done in my 40 years of uh, fundraising is uh, have the uh, outside eyes and. Uh, and years because we surveyed the community to get ready for our campaign, which we're currently on. It's a, a $25 million campaign and, um, we're still in the silent phase, but, uh, boy, if we didn't have, uh, 
the outside council to assist us in getting institutional ready, um, serving the community and putting all the players in, in place, uh, we wouldn't be as successful as we are. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting addition as well is that we're, we're often in a, in a, in a smaller community. You're closer to your cabinet. It's a tighter group sometimes of wealth, but you're also very close to the clients that you serve. So even though we're all education based here, you know, uh, I'm sure these vice presidents are running into faculty on a regular basis. You're running into people that you're connected with. It's, there's no isolation. And in, in a larger town or a larger city, when, when we're doing study work and interviews, we often get asked a little bit more about what's happening at that institution. What's going on over there? Can you give me more information? Whereas as we get to a rural town, they all, they're saying, I see them or, Someone, one of my friends was just there and we, they have a much more close and personal connection to the organization, whether it's education or hospital or a, or a, or a cancer support group. And so, you know, we, we always need to keep in mind the proximity in rural is so much closer and, and they're only one degree of separation away from services or something in that organization, whereas in a larger center, it's a little more distant. Oh, that leads into one of the, the challenge questions, or it could be an opportunity question. I think you've just described the opportunity side, but that, that, uh, uh, you know, in your pocketness of, of being that close to each other, is that, can that be challenging where everyone has an opinion about how you should be running your organization because, you know, they see it every day out their front door? Um, I'd, I'd say, speaking, it's Michael from Red Deer, is the, the, I, I agree with that. In fact, uh, we are on the cusp of, you know, anything that's been controversial. Um, uh, for example, in, uh, we, we're very mindful of, uh, you know, how media will cover certain things. Um, it certainly can very quickly escalate into something bad uh, that we don't necessarily escape. Um, and, and one that is public that I'll use as an example is uh, in uh, we were for a time had as a student Omar Cotter, uh, and that's the truth. That's so that's public, so it's it's not news. He had completed a program at McEwen anonymously. Nobody even knew. Nobody paid attention. He came to Red Deer and was admitted into our pro, into a nursing program, full on qualified. That response in the community was remarkable and disappointing in many ways, um, and that gave us such a challenge because I had people who, again, closeness to the situation in their minds, um, were saying, "Never again will I donate to Red Deer College because you did that." And, and the vehemence was quite remarkable. Whereas in a larger urban community, I'd suggest, you know, that, and again, there's exceptions, uh, recent media coverage and at the UFC, for example. But, um, uh, this is, it's something we were always mindful of. It's, it, and it was, it really posed a challenge for us until the heat died down. Right. What have been your experiences, Carmen, Georgina? People being well, very close to the organization and perhaps feeling they have a, 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 a an appropriate or maybe not appropriate voice over what you're doing. Yeah, I, I you know what I would say all the time. It's something we're really mindful of. 
um, in every decision making, whether it's fundraising or, or just general decisions for the organization. Um, again, in Vermilion in particular, it's you know there's people just down the street, so every every purchasing decision is is scrutinized. Um, even though we have, <laughs> I, it, I saw some is. lumber coming in. Who'd you buy that from? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. You know, and, and the fact that we we have some very stringent you know procurement policies that we need to follow. Um, doesn't necessarily weigh in when we've got local vendors who are saying, well, we're here and why aren't you supporting the community that you, that you live in? Um, which we do, of course. So that, those kind of things always weigh in and the politics of, of your decisions in a small community come down to some of the times it won't be something as high profile as what Michael said. It could be something like what kind of bleachers you have in your equine center. <laughs> or you know, and are they are they appropriate for for those kind of venues? Or the fact that codes have changed over the years, so it's not okay for us to just pack in a thousand people into a into a site that you know two hundred people um, meet the code in. So it's it's those kind of things that we end up dealing with, and then how do you how do you roll with that? Because you know that you'll be wearing it downtown at some point in time. In the case of smaller charities, and given that this is it's outside of the post-secondary environment, but a publicly funded environment, uh, it, Jordan is absolutely right. The, the, uh, well, as we spoke about the Gary Harris Canada Game Center, we were fortunate in that the general contractor in partnership was was one based out of Edmonton and one based out of Red Deer, who wanted a, in a in a fair RFP process that was scrutinized. But time and again, we still have local vendors who say, "Why didn't you buy from me?" And um, it causes a significant problems or challenges. It's not a problem. It's it's a challenge because we have to follow the rules. And um, there is, by virtue of that, you know, some of the smaller charities, if they, if anything, they they can get more freedom to buy locally, uh, or they will be inclined to buy locally in order to secure the support of the, the given vendor. Uh, and and that maybe is something you wouldn't necessarily see in an Edmonton, Calgary, or or elsewhere. Hmm. I'd like to add that. Oh, well, yes. Um, I think they competition for the philanthropic dollar or the sponsorship dollar, whatever you make, because uh, we, we do both. Um, becomes very critical and on the top of the minds of, of our donors. And that is, everyone's asking for money. And uh, there was a day when United Way was the, the philosophy of uh, one-stop shop uh, for uh, filling their uh Need to give to the community, and and that of course has changed uh, rapidly. And uh, we have uh, you know a hospital foundation that's quite large. We have the college. Uh, we have all our nonprofits that are fundraising. We have our local Rotary clubs. It just seems like uh, everyone's fundraising, and I'm I'm hearing it from our uh, even our board members. And and when we were launching our campaign here. And so, yeah, but the hospital is launching one too, and there's not enough to go around. And why don't you guys get together and and just do do it jointly? So that that is um, uh, well, definitely a concern. But I, I, it is not as problematic that uh, I think uh, people think it is. And that is, uh, we're all here to for the betterment of the social policy and care of our community. And so. When the tide comes in, all ships rise, and and I I sense that in in this community, but it's it's still a hard hard thing to uh, sell to to some people until you really get personal and talk about it. And um, uh, in most cases, uh, people will give to to all the causes uh, if they're asked. Uh, we have a very uh, caring community, and uh, I think uh, the most recent slide from the from Vitro actually that uh, uh, Revenue Canada, I think we're at 15.7 billion in 
in gifts to uh, by Canadians uh, in in 1990. I think it was uh, 5.7 billion. So we've grown a lot in in uh, giving a giving community. It's we are generous. As we think about this, Vincent, is is that in in my in my view, leadership that leadership group, the leadership volunteers, that executive director, that president is so much, it's even more important in a small institution and in a rural area than it is in, in, in bigger cities because that proximity that people, people see the person, they meet the person, they talk to the person and that, that trust relationship is so important more so than, than others. And, and I would say a, a poor leader can be hidden sometimes in a, in a larger urban center. And, and again, people don't see it, but they can't be hidden in a, in a small center. Uh, you know, the presidents of institutions are asked to speak at, at, you know, multiple times a year at major community events and, and they have to go. There's not a lot of option there. And as Michael said, he's always on. Yeah, you have to always on. And that's where that, so, so we need to really, and, and so you, you couple that with a challenge of big institutions trying to recruit into those centers of the, the recruitment pool is lower, it, it can be a risk for organizations sometimes is around leadership change and how that works in an or institution or organization. Scott, uh, to your point, is that um, uh, local matters, not only in terms of procurement and all that sort of thing, but local matters in terms of people that we bring into the development role, and I see that across the sectors. It doesn't have to be just ours, but the charitable sector in, in our region. Um, you import some development officer, say, we'll use the example, was at the U of C, and they decide that they're going to relocate to Red Deer, and they certainly have all of the skills, and they have the, the, the pedigree, as it were, but they aren't local. And to gain traction in the local community, and I think it would be more pronounced in a, in a Vermilion Lloyd Minster, for example, um, is that, that local matters. And indeed, in our hiring, the, the, the good thing is you bring in somebody who's, who's local and, and develop their skills. The downside is that there is a shortage of that kind of um, uh, resource in regions that we represent, I would suggest, uh, in contrast to uh, Calgary or Edmonton, where you can move from one institution or one charity to another among dozens. Now, that topic all by itself is actually an excellent topic for a future podcast, I would think, around the, the how do you deal with um, with recruiting and attracting talent into into some of these areas. So I I'm glad that you brought that up, Michael, and I and I want to put a pin in that. I um I would like to shift to one last sort of uh conversation before before we we could talk for a long time about this. Mm -hmm. I there's many podcasts in this, but um all of you are, are doing capital campaigns at this stage, at various stages, um that I would suggest the the value of your campaigns is not Significantly uh, dissimilar from what I see in in uh, in colleges in in larger centers, and I'm just curious from your experience, um, how do you find people's approach? Like, is, is the gift chart the same in a smaller center as it is in a larger center? Are people willing to make gifts at the at the at the top end uh, of the gift chart, or is, is is it a different place to work in? You know what I'm saying? Is a major gift the same in your space as it is in Calgary or Edmonton? Well, I, I would say yes and yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. I, I, I mean, we do use the gift chart for sure, and uh, we, you know, we have the number of prospects and so on. 
uh, one of the things that challenges we've had here is people do comparisons and, and it's, uh, interesting, especially when you talk about naming rights opportunities and so on. And we've had other campaigns, uh, with the city and different, uh, things and people compare, uh, you know, what they got for, for say the naming right compared to, uh, you know, the, so what's the college going to give? So there is some of that. Um, but uh, I think the science of it, it, it makes a lot of sense and we do use it. It just, uh, there's definitely those comparables and I, 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 my wife sells real estate and, and when they, uh, you know, do a market evaluation of, uh, homes, they, they check out the comparables and, and, um, it's kind of similar here. And, it, it, they know what the, we have a, a major facility called the Coca-Cola Center and, um, and we know the, what was given compared to what we can give for that amount. Uh, it's, um, so, so, and it's, it's well known in the community. Thank you for that, Carmen. I'm so glad that you talked about other industries using comparables because I think mm-hmm. that sometimes can bring us back to the fact that, yeah, there's, that the science is there. Georgina, what's been your experience? Um, we absolutely do use that, that same methodology. I think it's, it's important to keep to the basics and keep those business fundamentals front and center for us and, and how we do our work. Um, however, in a smaller area, it's, it's getting people to raise their sights. So I would say there's a very, um, the major gift, I guess, work being done here at Lakeland is pretty fresh for us, uh, relatively speaking. So it's getting our staff even comfortable with those kinds of numbers. We've had some really exceptional gifts over the years and which helped everybody else raise their bars, but they come, then they become exceptions that, others can't necessarily aspire to. So we're slowly changing that culture, and by sticking with the gift chart that helps everybody really keep their sights on that um, and deal with everything in between. So I, I don't know that we'll win our campaign with the great big gifts that we would like to see typically. However, we'll still get there um, just more heavy slugging. All right, that's two for um, two on the gift chart. What about you, Michael? <laughs> well, uh, the gift chart works, uh, and, and one of the things, like, there's, there's two parts to this, really, is that uh, I think that particularly in these difficult economic times, uh, and it's become uh, a, a very much an, an annoyance of mine and, and one of those pet peeves, but we'll leave that be, is that, but it's about being realistic in terms of valuations and uh, in the quest for funds that uh, organizations and municipalities who are now in the game of, of sponsorship acquisition are selling assets for fire sale prices because, well, I could have gotten five years ago in the better times, I could have gotten a hundred grand for that. Well, now I can get 40, you know, the best I can get is 40, I think, and therefore I'll settle for 25, uh, kind of, kind of thing. So that's, that's very challenging because as Carmen has said, as Georgina has said, as we stick to the science and stick to the, to the legitimate valuation for naming or for sponsorship, we should hold true to our, to our values. Um, the other side of it, which is, I'll say it as being on the positive and the opportunity, is that, well, large transformational gifts are certainly realistic for us, and we are, com- and, and, and the challenge there is that we're competing. The million dollar donor or the half million dollar donor can pick us, but can also pick the hospital, can also pick, you know, the hospice or whatever it might be. So that's where the competition is. However, a hundred thousand dollar gift to any of our institutions or any charitable organization in these in our respective regions is hugely impactful 
and mm-hmm. can be honored in a real way and people pay attention to a hundred grand. Respectfully, I'd suggest that $100,000 given to a large post-secondary in Edmonton or Calgary is almost in the who cares category. That's well said, Michael. I agree. Well said. Uh, Scott, I'm, I'm going to give you a chance before I, uh, I wrap up this topic and, and move around to each of us to say our closing words. So what, what's your thoughts on this, if any? Well, I think, I think we all, there's not a surprise to give chart works. Um, yeah. I wasn't surprised, but I wanted to hear the affirmation, and it was unprompted, so that's awesome. Yeah, and, but I also think there's we need we need projects that that align with the community uh, even more so again that that can back up that gift that gift table. So I think I think in in a smaller community again where the where the community has a huge amount of knowledge about you, and they're connected to what you're doing. If you run a campaign or create priorities that aren't connected to where the community is or where it's going you're likely not going to see that transformational gift. And you see where Michael's, you know, transformational relationship with your with your center is is wonderful. And that was with a, a significant community need, an institutional need, and a and a and a significant community event that, that came together to create a transformational opportunity. And I think that's where sometimes we an institution's needs don't match where that donor list is and we still need to remember that the donors are the other side of the equation in addition to the need to, to make that transformation happen. Thanks for that. Thank you all. You've all been great guests. Uh, Georgina, Michael, Carmen, Scott, I, I, I hope, I hope we can have each of you back on a future podcast. So that would be, that would be great. Uh, we do want to do that. We like repeat guests. Um, before we go, I want, uh, I want each of you to have the chance to, to tell us a little bit more about about what we what you're working on, uh, where people can reach you, uh, you know what what what's uh, what's a big big thing that's in your life uh, right now that you want uh, people to hear about. I'm going to start with you, Michael. Anything you want our li- listening audience to know or to hear? Well, thanks uh, very much, Vincent. Thanks for the opportunity to participate in this. It's been great fun, and and I really valued the perspective of um, very respected colleagues. Um, the, the the challenge for us right now, I think, is is really uh, around um, the unintended consequences of the economic downturn. Is that uh, people? Uh, I see a changing face of philanthropy uh, in in uh, in general, uh, corporate at a corporate level. Uh, there's very much more about ROI and what's in it for me kinds of of attitudes that you see pervasive, uh, in my view, uh, around uh, opportunities for investment or donor or whatever. Philanthropy on an individual basis blessedly still lives and and uh, the generosity of people uh, that have stepped in when when uh, during difficult times has been remarkable and we've ex- we've experienced that here but we've seen a shift in the corporate side and and part of our challenge is being relevant uh in when we go to to a corporate in a in a large urban center when they're getting assailed by a bunch of different charitable groups even in their immediate community so so for us, what we're working on right now is trying to maintain that relevancy, build our credibility with the, the projects that we're doing, and, and really speak to our vision and stay tuned to our vision. And the vision for the college is around a future that, that is as a polytechnic university, but also around the things that we're doing within the, commun- within the community to support learners, and it's always about the learners first. Uh, and so I, I think that if I was to, to suggest anything as a takeaway to other charitable groups that my individuals that might be listening is staying focused on your donor, 
your donor will tell you where they're going to, how they're going to invest, and listen to the to their to their signals. And as I, the philosophy I try to impart among my staff is uh, uncovering unmet needs because you don't know, they don't know often what their needs are. It's for you to align to the vision of your organization. That's being truly donor centered and still advancing the vision of your organization. Well said, Michael. Thank you for that, and long live philanthropy, uh, Connor. <laughs> yeah. Carmen, I, uh, yeah. I would. What have you got to tell us? What do we need to know? Well, What's going yeah, on? When you say "long live philanthropy," it really brings to mind uh, uh, what uh, I love this profession. Uh, there's uh, people fund people, and they give on emotion. And Scott said earlier, and I think Michael referred to it as is. What's in it for the donor, not so much the institution? And I think it's important for us in the profession is to to really uh, make sure that we we meet their needs. Uh, and I think that's what's helped us be successful. And I think the the big thing that we're doing here right now is is the fact that we are in a campaign and we're in the silent phase, but we're still campaigning. And uh, uh, not to get into all that terminology, but uh, we're actively out there asking and we're trying to change the mindset to our special events are still very major in our well-balanced program and fundraising, but we're moving them to, to major gifting and where we've got people sponsoring events, but they're also giving directly. We're also looking at legacy gifts, uh, more family gifts. I think in a small, uh, a rural community, uh, also I, I look at the age of the community. We look in Quebec, we're about 400 years old, and in Alberta, we're 100 years old, and the peace country is is, is young, and um, so there's old money, but there's uh, a lot of young money, and um, I think uh, it's our job to to harvest it, and I think uh, uh, we're in this campaign, it's called Vital, and we plan to launch it in the fall. Scott, we haven't given you an update yet, but... Uh, Things are going good. We're uh, we're very excited. We have a very giving community, and uh, we just have to nurture it. And uh, I, I'm I'm getting close to the end of my my career. And for any of the young fundraisers that might be listening out there, uh, it's a it's a great ride because you're dealing with uh, people. And uh, I want to highlight volunteers. I think uh, you want to be successful in this this field. You work with uh, people that want to help uh, to advance our society and I think uh, I remember my first fundraising course was uh, uh, through the BAMP School of Management um, it was in 1986 and the presenter said remember to treat your volunteers special because they are because they step forward to help advance society and um, I think we're missing that in uh, in North America right now with uh, I, 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 that's just, I won't say anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, it's uh, it's exciting profession, and uh, I would encourage uh, I encourage my children to go into it. Actually, oh, Carmen, that's awesome, and thank you for talking about volunteers. And I, I I've been paying attention. We've been paying attention, and I think it's the case for each of each of your communities. The campaign at your institutions is actually uh, a community. Uh, project. Everybody's involved, and uh, and that's really such a special thing. And I I've seen that in Grand Prairie. So so thanks for sharing that and for your your wisdom and experience, uh, Georgina. Uh, you know, on the city that's in two provinces, tell us what's going on and tell us 
what, what you want people to know. Sure. You know what? Um, I'm in the glorious situation where, where Lakeland College was formed over 104 years ago, very first egg school to open in the province, and, and still one of the actually largest enrollments in egg in, in Western Canada. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. And so because of that, we have alumni all over the place that truly were transformed by their experience here, and they love, love, love Lakeland College. So going out and talking about what we're doing is really easy for our team. What's really exciting for me working here and on both campuses and in both communities is that we're transforming culture internally, which is making a huge difference externally. And so when we talk about building a philanthropic culture, it's it's really happening here. Like we're, Our development team is becoming seamless within the schools. They've got all of the internal folks that are understanding and starting to understand even more about how they can open doors and, and help out and just tell the story. And because we've been making it simpler to do that without and take away the terminology, we're seeing success. And that, that helps me get up every single day and be really excited about coming to work because I'm seeing my teams and other teams and, and just this whole group really get excited about philanthropy and the difference that it's making and the impact that they can make because it's not scary anymore. They're just talking about really great things and transformations. And and I love it. So um, that's all that I would add at this point in time. That's great. Georgina, thank you. That is fantastic leadership. And Georgina, I've been to, as you know, a couple of your campaign uh, cabinet meetings. It's a privilege to have been, and I've watched and felt that sentiment that you described uh, with your community. Uh, they're proud to be involved in that. I'm wondering, um, there's a video that was done for the dairy barn. Uh, mm-hmm. What's by from Eagle? Sorry, Eagle. Eagle I Builders. Eagle yeah. Builders. I, I'm wondering. Um, we should probably include that link uh, uh, out to the group. It's a great little piece of video, uh, and, and, and unashamedly, I cry every time I, I watch it. It's a fantastic. Uh, sentiment that I think was really embodies everything we've been talking today about in terms of fundraising in a in a smaller center. So I yeah, maybe thank share you. That I'd with agree with you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So, thanks. Um, Vincent, so uh, if if I can, if I may, make a pitch uh, to have folks. Yeah, please do. To go to the uh, RDC website www.rdc.ab.ca. But um, uh, if if anything, there's a link to a video, which is the video that we've been doing, and I, I, I'm not uh, in trying to overlap onto the, the dairy. No, 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 you please do. Want to look at that? But we have one that's a legacy video that speaks to why people should support the Gary Harris Canada Games Center, and um, and and with that, it's uh, we're pretty pretty excited by it. So folks go onto our website; it's easy to get to, um, and uh, they can pick up on the video. All they have to do is click on the uh, Gary Harris Center. It's a remarkable video, and I can certainly share it uh, to to you if you want to put it on to uh, however you want to share with, uh, with sure. folks. So. so what we'll do, folks, is uh, just for our listening audience, too, the, there'll be links to these uh, comments, uh, to each of these campaigns, and, and to these videos in our show notes. So thank you for bringing that up, Michael. I appreciate that. Um, Scott, I'm going to leave you the last word before we close this out. Uh, what do you want people to know and think about going forward? Well, thanks a lot, uh, Vincent, and thank you to all the guests who are on. Um, you know, at, at Betrayal, I'd say the theme we're seeing right now is around co-creation, which is one of our values, and and in the way we're we're, we're trying to work and 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 create a, a bit of a transformational change within our own organization right now, but also working with clients in the way and 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 the organizations that we serve in the way that they're working with their donors in that similar way of co-creation and creating ideas and and the ways we work together. 
it's, it's kind of a theme on a personal side in my volunteering with AFP Canada where, you know, we're, we're doing work not only co-creating with government around a few, uh, you know, meetings and, and connecting and trying to create that, that opportunity, but working with our chapters around, around really trying to create a vibrant organization in Canada. So, you know, our, our, our purpose in, in our company is to, to really elevate the performance of our clients, you know, through unparalleled skill and innovative services and, and, you know, anything we can do to, to create a clear approach is really important to us. So uh, I thank you all, and, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with anyone at any time uh, at thetrailgroup.ca. Thanks, Scott, and uh, I, I want to thank all of you. Uh, with that, our gift of another Brain Trust philanthropy powered by the trail has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us again next month when our topic will be what happens when we hire fast and fire slow, HR mistakes we keep making in the nonprofit sector and what to do about it. We will be welcoming back Alison Pitscalney as well as two new guests, Michelle Regal from Calgary and Steve Baker from Edmonton. Talk with you then. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.